This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome your questions for the next hour. If you're a first-time listener, we're taking questions people have as they've been studying God's Word or maybe facing a personal issue in their life, family, or marriage, and they need some counsel. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Uh, You can call us direct again at 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you don't want to go on the air live, you don't have to. You can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. So, Rick, uh, let's go ahead, and we'll get started this morning. And um, what's the first question that we have on tap? Well, Jeff from Rinkin, Georgia, and I might add that we are in the process of uh, surveying some areas in the Rinkin and Pooler area Yeah, uh, as far as locations for an expansion of Community Bible Church. So uh, did you want to address that? Yeah, let let me just uh, make a comment while since we have a a call from there uh, that has been dictated to us. Um, Yes, we are hoping to plant Community Bible Church of Beaufort, uh, a new campus in the Rinkin-Pooler area early in 2016. And so if uh, you live in that area, and we've had requests from people, yes, I'm interested. We had a family visited on Sunday from Rinkin uh, wanting to, you know, know more, find out more. So if you're interested, you can go to our website at communitybiblechurch.us, and there's a, a slash, pooler. slash pooler, forward slash pooler. So communitybiblechurch.us slash pooler. And uh, there is a little form for you to fill out. We'll keep you abreast of what's happening. And let me just say, if someone listening in the Pooler Rinkin area, maybe uh, maybe you're on the edge. You're with a church. We're getting ready to uh, take a church uh, in an area not too far from here. We haven't announced it officially yet, but they're down to like eight people and they don't know what to do. And everyone's over 70 and pulling their hair out and they know the doors are going to close. So we're going to uh, make that a live satellite campus uh, in January or February of 2016. Maybe you're in a church setting like that. Uh, Unfortunately, more and more Americans no longer attend church and we need to reach these people. And part of the reason I believe is the pulpits in America have been weak. We've gotten away from simple expository, plain preaching, of God's word. And we need that. And people are looking for that. I just got an email yesterday from someone who moved to Columbia and frustrated. They've been to so many churches. They went to Perry Noble's church. They told me they're tired of it, tired of the entertainment, just want some straightforward preaching and not man preaching. Uh, They went to a Baptist church that was all entertainment oriented. They said, we don't know where else to look. You led us to Christ. Can you help us? And And so uh, it's a real frustration for a lot of believers. So if you're interested, go to communitybiblechurch.us slash pooler. There's a form you can fill out and 
again, maybe you have a place that you could rent to us. Maybe you could not rent it to us and let us use it for free on Sunday morning. That would really be sweet um, because, again, this is a mission for us, and uh, we want to do everything that we can uh, to reach people for Christ. We, we, we're not interested, if someone's in a good Bible-believing church, to take them out. But if they're in some dead church where nothing's happening and uh, they want to you know, raise their children under the authority of the Scripture, uh, then we want them to come, but we want to grow largely by conversion. And that's what we do in most of our campuses is the majority of the people who join come by conversion. And that's important to us. So, you know, if I have 50 cents in my left pocket and switch it to my right pocket, I still only have 50 cents. And unfortunately, that's all that happens in America. People kind of just switch from church to church and place to place. And uh, they they don't know which end is up and, and there's real no advancement in the kingdom of God. So again, the phone number 843-525-1859, toll free 877, the call letters WAGP 980 for those live streaming through the internet. Let's go ahead, go back to that question. All right. Jeff from Rinkin would like to know if you've ever heard of the early 19th century evangelist Smith Wigglesworth. He wrote a couple of books on faith as he was a quote-unquote faith healer who claims in his books to have seen risen several people from the dead through faith. He writes, I discern there is a lot of problematic claims he makes, but I was wondering if you could offer further insight. Well, when I was in seminary, I taught a class at Lake Point Church. Uh, at the time, we were in Rowlett, Texas. Now we're in, they were in uh, Rockwall, Texas. It's a very large church. I was an elder there and the pastor of evangelism. But I had a guy in there who loved Wigglesworth, and he kept bringing him up constantly. So it kind of forced me to go and study the man's theology, and it's very, very shaky. Um, very typical of some expressions found even today, but maybe even more exaggerated um, central to what he taught was that in the atonement, there was physical healing. So when the Bible describes in Isaiah 53, the Messiah, it said he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows, or you could render it our sicknesses, um, he carried. And so, the argument is basically that just as you receive forgiveness by faith, even so, since Jesus, quote unquote, bore our sicknesses, and this is an issue of translation, the old English says sicknesses, the newer translations say something in reference to sorrows or the like. In either case, uh, the, the fact is, is that uh, they say in the same way you receive forgiveness by faith, you receive healing by faith. If you can believe God to forgive your sin on the basis of Christ's death, it's argued you should also equally be able to believe God for uh, forgiveness uh, uh, or release from your sicknesses by faith. The challenge with that is many. One is if the New Testament writers understood it in that fashion, then you would expect believers to, by faith, uh, be re- redeemed from their from their uh, sicknesses. Now, certainly there are miracles done in the Bible by the apostles to confirm that these men of God, these apostles were called of God, that they were his messengers. And so along with their ministry of preaching, there was an accompaniment of certain signs, wonders, and miracles that set them apart as apostles. And there were some things that they did that were indeed unique. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, um, the Apostle Paul makes an argument for his apostleship based on that fact. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. How? By signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul's argument here is that if every believer could do these signs, wonders, and miracles simply by faith on the basis of the atonement, then there would be no argument that he would have for using these as uh, setting him apart as an apostle. But the fact that he did these things set him apart as an apostle. Now, the devil, I know, can duplicate things, but we're talking about these signs, wonders, and miracles accompanied by the same message that Jesus gave that's recorded in the Holy Scriptures that was uh, found really in the Old Testament and the Tanakh. Uh, it was all there, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. So Wigglesworth uh, argues that, you know, by faith you can be healed. And by the way, a lot of our Pentecostal brethren argue the same basis. Interestingly, when you step into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit gives us some divine commentary on this passage in that Peter, when he uh, looks back uh, at the atonement of Jesus Christ and what was accomplished, he references Isaiah 53. One of the things I was teaching the discovery class last Sunday because I did not, uh, I was not preaching. Uh, one of our associate pastors were in because that gave me a chance to teach the discovery class, which I really enjoyed. And I was uh, trying to teach some of uh, those believers how they could use their New Testament to uh, interface with the Old Testament. And this is why it's really helpful to have a Bible with marginal notes, because the marginal notes give you an opportunity to see when the Old Testament is being quoted or referenced. And it is, you know, throughout the New Testament, you will see one, a change in typeset, which, uh, or some uh, publishers, depending on the translation you're using, uh, they'll either put it in all caps or italics, but they'll, or they'll set it apart in the text as an Old Testament quote. But you know it's a reference to the Old Testament just because of the change in the typeset. Or sometimes the Old Testament quotation itself has been introduced um, by the author, Isaiah the prophet said, or whatever. But sometimes you say, well, where did Isaiah the prophet say this? And this is where a Bible with marginal footnotes are really helpful. And so, for instance, in the New American Standard, they have um, every verse uh, divided into parts. So I turn to First Peter chapter 2, and it says here in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live uh, to righteousness for by his wounds, or you could render it uh, by his stripes if you were quoting the Hebrew text, but very often the New Testament interfaces with the Septuagint. And so rightly it says, for by his wounds you were healed. And you may look at that and say, well, that phrase sounds awful familiar. And it does because it's a reference to what Isaiah said in the 53rd chapter. So the Holy Spirit gives us divine commentary on Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep were silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So that aspect from verse 7 is uh, referenced, not to mention verse 50, Isaiah 53, 3. So the Holy Spirit gives us divine commentary. When Peter looks back on the Isaiah text, he doesn't see it in reference to physical healing. He sees it in reference to spiritual healing. 
So yes, you could say, well, ultimately there is healing in the atonement in the sense that Jesus, because if he did what he did, he's going to complete our salvation and we'll get resurrection bodies. But it's not uh, a promise given on Isaiah that just as by faith you can receive forgiveness in the same way you can receive physical healing. That's attractive to people that will fill auditoriums and it will raise a lot of money for the uh, faith healer. But it's really not biblical. If it were, why did Paul tell Timothy to take a little wine for his frequent ailments? Wine could be used as a medicine. And so Timothy, no doubt, was wanting not to drink any wine at all uh, and did not, like John the Baptist, even mix it with water. And Paul said, no, you, you, you need to take a little bit because, uh, you know, you're a traveling pastor and he was obviously getting sick at times. Uh, again, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. If it was just a faith issue, why didn't he believe God to heal him? What about Epaphroditus? Was, was he so unbelieving that he came to the point in his life where he was near death? Uh, I, I think not. So again, the, the scriptures allow for sickness for a number of reasons. Sometimes it has nothing to do with uh, a lack of faith. Sometimes sickness is onto the glory of God. God uses it as a testimony. Some people are sick their whole lives, and yet they demonstrate that their joy is not found in a healing, a physical healing, in perfect health, but in the Lord. And that's a testimony in and of itself. Um, again, so Wigglesworth uh, was really off on some major, major things. And he took this thing to the extreme where he taught the, against the use of all medicine, totally. Uh, that, that's really odd and extreme and dangerous. Uh, He believed, too, that the signs and wonders that the apostles did should follow every man of God's ministry. And again, he's confusing the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the apostles with that of the average Christian. And so he's just like a lot of word faith preachers in our day. He doesn't make a distinction between the person and ministry of Jesus Christ and those whom he uniquely commissioned as apostles To be an apostle, you had to have been chosen by him. You had to have seen the Lord in his resurrection body. And if those things, two things were true of you, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles, as Paul argues here in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that only a true apostle can do. And then beyond that, he said you really couldn't be sure of your salvation unless you had this uh, event in your life called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which he put subsequent to salvation— He said it happened after you were saved. Of course, the New Testament teaches it happens the moment you're saved. For we have all been baptized by one spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The moment you believe on Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It happens at the moment of conversion. Now, that wasn't always true. Uh, Prior to Pentecost, they had to wait for the coming of the Spirit. But once the Spirit comes, the general principle is outlined in the epistles and passages like Ephesians 1, 13 to 15. In him, in Christ, you also, after hearing the message of truth, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear, you believe, and you receive the Spirit. So much so that Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have him, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. It's a mark of conversion. So to say that there's this second work of grace that comes later that in his theology was accompanied by speaking in tongues 
And if you had not had this experience and you really couldn't even know you were saved, just really shaky. Um, I hope we'll meet the man in heaven, but he's very shaky and I would not recommend any of his works or writings at all. 843-525-1859 or toll free 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at net. A caller would like to know if the Gospel of John was written two generations ago, or two generations after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, rather. A caller saw a movie stating this, so he'd like to know your opinion. Well, uh, clearly not. Certainly, John was an apostle who lived much later uh, than all the other apostles. He was the last apostle to die. Uh, he was, not, his life, excuse me, was not extinguished by persecution, though he was deeply persecuted. But in the end, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which, of course, he wrote the book of Revelation. Even the dating of Revelation uh, is, even by the most liberal scholars, is put in the uh, early 90s. There was a time when pastors or or scholars like A.T. Robinson thought maybe it was written around 110 And then he came to his own senses and realized, no, it had to be written in the early 90s at the latest. Some would date it in the early 70s. Some would even date it before the destruction of the temple. But clearly, clearly it was not written two generations later. That's just liberal uh, theology wanting to discount the fact that it was written by an apostle because John was long dead by then. And so um, I believe what the New Testament teaches, uh, what Jesus promised in reference to the apostles. You know, the, the skeptics are always there. For instance, the skeptics were preaching through the book of Daniel right now on Sunday mornings. And I re- reminded our people that Daniel really is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. We've just finished the first half of Daniel, which is really the historic section. When you come to chapters 7 through 12, you come into the prophetic section. And of course, understanding the historic section is critical to understanding the prophetic section. And the prophetic section is critical to understanding the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons people struggle so deeply with the revelation that God gave from Jesus Christ to the Apostle John is because they don't understand the second half of, of Daniel, which again, your understanding of it is also dictated on your understanding of the first half of Daniel. So if you're interested in studying that, uh, it's online at Community Bible Church or at searchthescriptures.org, and we will come right after the first of the year to the second half of the book of Daniel. So it becomes very, very important. But again, the critics want to attack it, and they say, well, Daniel was written late, around uh, 250 uh, B.C. Uh, Those dates in there are usually thrown out. Some say 190 B.C., Um, Most of the liberal scholars, though, would not date it after 250 B.C. because of certain historical evidences that that the Jewish people clearly have, uh, where it's quoted and so forth by that time frame. Uh, So there's no question that their dating after that would be in total error. But their basic point is it was not written by Daniel. So I disagree with that. And you can go through a lot of ink, and I've read chapters and chapters on the authorship of Daniel and all the attacks over it. I had to do that in 
seminary, and every time, very often, I come to a, a new book of the Bible that I'm studying, I will refresh my mind and my thoughts with it. But if you want to take all the air out of the balloon, you don't even have to read those things. Just read Matthew twenty four fifteen, where Jesus speaks of Daniel the prophet, who spoke of the abomination of desolation. So Jesus accredits the authorship of the book of Daniel to Daniel himself. And I will show our people that even the critics who give it a late date, it comes unglued for them. They distort the scriptures, Peter says, to their own destruction. But in their ignorance, they miss the fact that some of the prophecies that Daniel writes in the 11th chapter were fulfilled after their late date for the book of Daniel. Daniel was written around 600 years before Christ, not even 250. But even if you took the the date by the skeptics, they missed some basic points. You know, sometimes we speak of the silent years between Malachi and Matthew where there was no prophet in Israel. But in one sense, they're not entirely silent. And that Daniel wrote about what would take place during the silent years, and he wrote of those events before they ever happened. So it's not Daniel the historian recording history, it's Daniel the prophet writing what is going to happen in the future because the Spirit of God came upon him. So uh, if you wanted to read some good background material uh, on uh, the dating of the Gospel of John, uh, there's a lot of resources out there that you can Uh, reference and use any good uh, New Testament survey book. uh, We'll give you that. But if you want to study it in detail, go to searchthescriptures.org. I did a survey of the New Testament and I went through the books of the New Testament. I did the Gospel of John. And as I covered the Gospel of John, I went through the dating of John and all the different issues and to show when it was written, why we know this is true, why the late dates are false, and uh, I go through it step by step. So that's online. We have uh, at searchthescriptures.org a Institute of Biblical Studies that people can take. And in the Institute of Biblical Studies, uh, folks are able to take 33 hours of intense study that is equivalent to a Bible certificate. In fact, uh, a few of the people have now caught up with me because I have two courses left to do. And so, Lord willing, beginning in January, I'm going to start one of those two courses. I'm going to do pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, beginning uh, towards uh, the end of January. Anyway, a great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We just had a caller who'd like to know if you've read the works of Malcolm Mugridge. And uh, this caller would like to know, did he have a true conversion to Christianity? If so... Uh, is there a work by – well, we've actually got a live caller. we got to give them preference, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Hey, good morning. Good. Um, I've been reading the, the book of Ezekiel and was amazed by what, what a magnificent prophet he was and just – how he references so many so many things that would happen in the future. I believe he even references Armageddon. Um, my question is, he, he he also mentions Daniel. So I'm I'm am I, I'm assuming that he, Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. Is it possible that they actually knew each other? Well, it's a good question. Uh, Jeremiah is what we would call a pre-exilic prophet. So whenever you study the Bible, you always want to ask when you're dealing with the prophets. At what time in biblical 
history was this person in ministry? Was it uh, prior to uh, the kingdom dividing? And so there was a time under the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, each ruled for 40 years. That makes it easy to remember. So the kingdom was united for 120 years. And there are people who ministered during that time frame. You can read of them directly, like in First Samuel, First and Second Samuel, which is one book in the Hebrew Bible, or First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. You have Samuel, of course, who's well known because there are two books in our English Bible that we divide uh, into two books uh, that are named after him and. He was the one responsible for their authorship. But then there's a number of smaller prophets who do not have a book written after their name who ministered during that time. Um, I say smaller, not insignificant, but they don't have a book after them. Elijah and Elisha were prophets of God. Um, They don't have books written after them. Um, Of course, they, they step in to a slightly different time after the kingdom's divided. But there are some prophets who minister during the time of the United Kingdom who don't have books. And then the kingdom divides. Of course, uh, God tells Solomon because of his disobedience, he was going to split the kingdom in two. But he would wait until after his death because of for the sake of his father, David, because he had such a special relationship with King David a man after God's own heart, as both the Old and New Testament state specifically. And so Solomon's son comes to the throne, Rehoboam. Uh, He is very unwise, very foolish, ignores the counsel of the older elders in Israel, listens to the younger men. And because of that, the kingdom splits into two. Now we have 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. There's a number of prophets we call major and minor prophets who ministered during this time frame. Jeremiah is one of them. So Jeremiah is what we call a pre-exilic prophet. The 10 northern tribes is called Israel, and they're eventually in 722 BC attacked by the Assyrians and carried away. Uh, The two southern tribes, named after the larger of the two, Judah and and, um, Benjamin, are eventually carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar, whom we've been studying here in the uh, book of of Daniel. Uh, I always keep the order when I was first learning it. In my mind, I like to use mnemonic devices or whatever to help it stick. A comes before B, I comes before J. So A, the Assyrians carried away Israel. B, the Babylonians carried away Judah. And the Judah Judah carrying away takes place under three deportations. And we studied the first one when we opened and cracked the door already to the book of Daniel, where Daniel and his three friends and some other members of the royal family are carried off. Uh, at the time, it was General Nebuchadnezzar. His dad, Nebuchadnezzar, was the king. Uh, General Nebuchadnezzar comes down, and in the process of sieging the city of Jerusalem, of course, uh, his father dies, and so he takes some hostages, puts up a kind of a puppet king in his place, And Daniel and some of his friends, among other royal members of the royal uh, staff, are are carried away. So uh, Daniel prophesies during the time of the exile, as does Ezekiel. So Jeremiah is a pre-exilic prophet. There's only two exilic prophets, and that's Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are the only two who preached during the time of the exile. And so they were contemporaries. 
when we come to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to be reading uh, the prophet Jeremiah because Daniel will be reading the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is long dead by then. But the prophet Jeremiah wrote of, a, of an exile that would last for 70 years. And it was not a number that God just pulled out of the sky. It was based on the disobedience of Israel. Uh, once every seven years, God asked the people to allow the, the land to go fallow. And they refused for 490 years. So the land was robbed of 70 years of being fallow. It was a faith issue that God would provide for their needs. Uh, that he would give them a bumper crop, just like he gave Egypt bumper crops for seven years during the seven years of famine the people were taken care of. So they already had a biblical precedent of God's faithfulness, and all they needed to do was believe God, and uh, they didn't. So God was going to get his 70 years no matter what. So Ezekiel is contemporary with Daniel, but did Daniel know Jeremiah? No, he didn't. And the book of Ezekiel, as you say, it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding what he writes of. In the first three chapters, you find the commissioning of Ezekiel. And when you come to the fourth chapter, you find uh, the judgment on the two southern tribes, or what we call Judah, beginning in chapter 4 all the way through verse uh, chapter 24. And um, then you find, uh, when you come to the 25th chapter, God judging the Gentile nations of the world and how he's going to deal with them. And then when you come to the 33rd chapter, you come to the future restoration of Israel. So that's the book in a nutshell. And it's chapters 33 through 48 that is prophetic in nature. Just like Daniel has his prophetic section, so does Ezekiel. And he looks down the road and he sees a time when Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel sees a time when the people of Israel will actually receive Messiah. And he uses beautiful terminology where God will take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Uh, there'll be a pliability there because they'll know the Lord. They'll be born again. But that time doesn't happen. And until the time before Messiah comes in, rules upon the earth, which he again describes in great detail, the millennial reign of Messiah. Really, I should say the Messiah's reign on the earth, not millennial. It is a millennium for a thousand years, but the time frame is given to us from the New Testament, not from the Old Testament. But he predicts this, but prior to that time frame, before it, what today we know as the Great Tribulation, which Daniel the prophet is going to speak of in the 12th chapter that Jeremiah already described prior to these two men living. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble that during that seven year time frame, God is going to move upon the Jewish people in a powerful way and bring them to faith in Christ. Anyway, good question, but it's a reminder. You always want to ask, is this prophet ministering when the kingdom's united? Is he is he ministering after the kingdom's divided? Uh, where he's a pre-exilic prophet? Is he ministering during the time of the exile and there's only two there? Or is he ministering after the exile and there's just four there? So good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980. If you have a question for today's Bible line, getting back to that uh, question about Malcolm Muggridge, yeah. uh, this person wanted to know, well, we've got another live caller. We always give preference to live callers, so let's go to them, and then we'll get to Malcolm Muggridge. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How are you doing, Pastor? Hey, Anthony. Nice to hear your voice today. Uh, right. Question. Uh, this is a conversation question that I have with friends at times, and 
I hope you're listening to. If once we are born again, the Bible speaks that we are engrafted into God's family. Yes. That there's that there has been an adoption. Yes. And we are called children of God. Yes. According to First John. And but when we and I want to can't we I guess we can't use an example when you speak about family versus God's family, our physical family in reference like uh, for example, with all your children, I know you have to love all your children the same. I know you don't love one no more than the other. Correct? Uh, no question. Yes. No, no question. No, no more than the other. Okay. Well, once we are born again, and where we are in our faith, we say that <clears throat> that heaven is not going to be the same for everybody. Heaven, hell is not going to be the same for everybody. But when you get to heaven, you won't know, will you or will you not know the saints in heaven? You know, you really, you, I don't think it's going to be, if I'm correct, and you go up, hey, man, I'm in a better place in heaven. I'm on Boulevard Street in heaven and you somewhere else, even though I know that uh, we're going to be in the presence of Almighty God forever. But how would you explain that to someone when you think about family, think about God's family, and you say heaven will not be the same? If heaven will not be the same, would there be some kind of bad feeling or different feeling? And I'm going to sit back and uh, listen to listen to you, okay? Sure. Great question. Uh, several several issues you raised, Anthony. Uh, it is true that while God so loves the world, and in, there's a sense in which the love of God is very broad to everyone who's lived, who's alive, who's yet to be born. In this scripture, when it speaks of the world, it's referring actually to the world, not just to the elect, as some of my hyper- Calvinistic friends would say he's talking about the whole world. God really loves people. Uh, God takes no pleasure. The Bible says in the destruction of the wicked Ezekiel reminds us, I think on three different occasions in either case, while God loves the world, he definitely has a special affection for those who are born again in a creative sense, both Malachi and Matthew uh, Malachi and uh, Acts 17 refer to uh, the people of this world as God's creatures, as his children in a creative sense. But in a spiritual sense, as you mentioned, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he has given the right, the authority, the exousia, the power to become children of God. So only those who have received Jesus in the truest sense are deemed children of God. Why? Because the spirit of God lives in them. Uh, my children have my life in them. God's children has his life in them. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to impart new life to them. They are new creations. They are children of God. And so John will repeatedly use that expression, not just in his gospel, but also in his epistles. Uh, so while God loves the world, he refers to his people with both a noun and a verb. The verb sense, we are beloved of God. In the noun sense, we're called his beloved. Uh, I love my next door neighbors, kids, but I don't love them like I love my kids. I have a special affection 
for my children that God gives me. And that's just normal. That's healthy. That's um, the way God created it. There's with that a certain responsibility and care and provision that a parent has towards those children that God blesses them with. Um, While God does not have his favorites, uh, you asking, does God love some more than others? I would say no. If we are in Christ, John 17 in the high priestly prayer makes it very clear that he loves everyone who is in Christ as much as he loves his own son. So while God doesn't have his favorites, I will say he has his intimates. God was certainly more intimate with uh, the apostle John. Uh, God is intimate, the Bible says, with the righteous, those who live righteously. And so there are things that God wants to show us, wants to reveal about his will, his plan, his character, uh, that he is unable to. Uh, John 14 speaks to this very issue of the fact that God can reveal himself. Uh, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him disclose myself to him. Well, you say, I thought he loved everybody. He does. But there is a disclosure dimension to God's love that comes with obedience. And that only makes sense. You know, if we won't obey what God has shown us, he can't really show us new things. And some Christians have a dry, dull relationship with the Lord. The fire, the excitement is gone because there's compromise in the human heart. The heart of the problem is always a problem of the human heart. And so we're told to watch over our hearts with all diligence. Now, when we get to heaven, because some have watched over their hearts with all diligence, some will have greater rewards than others. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. There's an assumption that Christians, because that's the audience there in Matthew 6, can lay up treasure in heaven. If we're all going to have the same amount of treasure, then it would make no sense. So clearly heaven is not the same for everyone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, and by the way, we will come to this subject because Daniel addresses it in the 12th chapter of Daniel. He said, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which he tells us is Jesus Christ. And then he says, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. What day? The day when God evaluates us as Christians. It's called the Bema seat. The Bema is different from the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, 11 to 15 only has unbelievers present. But at the Bema, for we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ. It's a time of evaluation. It was used in the first century. In fact, I, I stood at the very Bema that the Apostle Paul stood before when I was in the city of Corinth a couple of years ago. That Bema has been miraculously preserved. The very place that he stood before Galilee the consul, consul he is still there in existence. And it was a place of evaluation. Sometimes it was a place where criminals were um, evaluated and then condemned. And so Pilate is at the Bema when he, quote unquote, judges Christ. Uh, It was also used as a place of evaluation for reward. And that's the context in which Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 5. During the Isthmian Games, the judges would stand on the Bema. It's an elevated platform. The one there in 
Uh, Corinth is about uh, seven feet off the ground. So it's a good height. And there's a flat field in front of them. And so they could stand on such a, a platform and they could watch and evaluate the races. And if someone won the 100-meter race, say, um, they, weren't, they were given a wreath. If someone lost, they weren't beaten or stoned. They just didn't get a reward. And Paul speaks of rewards later on in this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's been a Christian 25 years when he makes this statement that everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, these runners, these athletes, do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we as Christians, we do it for an imperishable wreath. Therefore, he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul didn't want to be disqualified. He's not talking about our salvation, but from being used by God in a mighty way where his reward in the in turn would be diminished. And again, he really expounds that here in 1 Corinthians 3. There's two sorts of material, gold, silver, and precious stone. And he's going to tell us in a moment that our works are going to be evaluated with fire. And if you take gold, silver, and precious stone and put fire to it, they remain. But if you take uh, wood, hay, and straw and put fire to it, it's uh, vanished. And there are some Christians in the broader context who are not filled with the Spirit. They remain babes in Christ. They live fleshly lives. They have enough fruit to show they're born again, but they have such a lack of fruit, they show that they have never matured. And that's not God's fault. That's their fault. Paul said, by this time, uh, you should have matured. Or the writer of the Hebrews says that. And, and Paul says, even now, you're not yet spiritual. You're still carnal. Four years had transpired, and He had expected that they would have matured in a great way, but they had not. They remained in infantile Christianity. And, of course, a day will come when each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. He addresses this in 1 Corinthians 5, where he tells us, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness, and God will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Again, speaking of reward, where God looks at quality, not just quantity. I mean, what would you rather have when tested with fire, a dump truck full of hay or a handful full of diamonds? I'd rather have the handful of diamonds because it's going to last. And so then he says, if any man's work, which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. A loss of what? A loss of salvation? No, clearly not. That would deny everything that Paul wrote in all of his epistles, but contextually, a loss of reward. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. Um, remember here in the context, it's the, it's the works that are burned up because they're worthless. They're not done in the power of the Spirit. They're done for self, for the approval of men to build a name for self or whatever it might be, or, or the works are done in the energy of the spirit and uh, in the energy of the flesh instead of the energy of the spirit. And so they're worthless at the judgment seat of Christ. This is not, by the way, a text to teach purgatory, as our Roman Catholic friends argue. It's not the people who are burned in the flames of purgatory. It's the works that are burned. But nonetheless, it says, he shall be saved, 
yet so is through fire. He'll suffer loss, but he will be saved, yet so is through fire. So initially, yes, I would say there's going to be a very sober time for God's people in heaven. And some of us are going to be deeply disappointed as to why we didn't invest more directly in the things that really mattered, why we didn't study the word of God, the tool that the Lord uses to bring about conversion. No one has ever been born again apart from the word of God and the tool that the spirit of God uses for sanctification to grow us. Why didn't I spend more time in the scriptures? Why was I so infantile in my thinking and did not allow my mind to be renewed? Because as a man thinks in his heart, that's what he becomes like. Why didn't I you know, invest in things that really mattered. And so some Christians will be disappointed when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, They'll be glad they're in heaven, but remember it's in heaven that he will wipe away our final tears. So there's no crying after that judgment. Um, But we'll talk about this in great detail when we come to the prophet Daniel, the 12th chapter, and when we come to the revelation Because, again, it is addressed there. We see the elders taking their wreaths, their crowns, and worshiping Christ with them. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, we're going to try to get to Malcolm Mugridge. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, sure. um, Do you think he uh, has become uh, saved? Was he saved? I sure hope so. You know, um, there are born-again Roman Catholics, and I hope he was in that category. Uh, Would I consider him mature? No. Uh, Why not? Because if someone is really mature in their faith and they're a Roman Catholic, they would leave the Roman Catholic Church. Are there born-again Catholics? Of course there are. I've met them before who have legitimately met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But remember, fundamentally, the Roman Catholic Church has never renounced their faulty view of salvation. They do not teach that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. If you come to Community Bible Church on a Sunday morning, you will look up and behind the pulpit on the back wall that that huge stained glass window actually raises up where we do our baptisms are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone to the glory of God alone. So sola gratia. Grace alone, sola fide, faith alone. Uh, The Roman church denied that. And this is why it became one of the catchphrases of the Reformation. And when they came to Vatican I and Vatican II, they repeated that everything that stood at the Council of Trent still stood. And so they have never renounced that a man is saved by faith and works. The Bible does not teach a man is saved by faith and works. It teaches we're saved by grace alone. Now, the James, one of the apostles in the New Testament, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and yes, he was an apostle. He taught very clearly that we're saved by faith alone, uh, but not by a faith that is alone. Um, we're not saved by faith plus works, as the Roman church teaches, We're not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that works. That good works are simply the fruit and evidence of justification. I sure hope Malcolm Muggeridge came to understand that, but he never really left his roots. And so I would say at best, he was not a mature Christian. Um, At worst, he was not a believer at all. But again, there, there are born again Roman Catholics, and I like to think of him as being one of them. And, uh, but I, I think if someone matures in their faith, he was a guy of great intellect, 
I don't discount that, but sometimes our intellect gets in the way of our spiritual growth. Uh, Jesus said that God had revealed these things to babes. In other words, to people who were childlike, to people who didn't lean on their own understanding. The Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say not to use it, but don't to lean on it. And some people who are of high intellectual capacity lean on their understanding and they don't really grow. Um, So I fear that's maybe what happened to Malcolm Mugridge. Anyway, good question. Oh, by the way, before I forget, Rick, tomorrow uh, evening, Wednesday at 6.30, we have an Orthodox rabbi who will be at Community Bible Church. Um, His name is Hanok Teller. Uh, He contacted me yesterday just before he left Jerusalem. He said, I'm on my way to Tel Aviv to catch a plane, and he'll be here tomorrow evening to speak to the people of Community Bible Church in our fellowship hall. Uh, He lives in the old city of Jerusalem. He has 18 children. Uh, He's considered the foremost expert who is alive on the Holocaust. Uh, If you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., it is uh, basically modeled after Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum, if I can call it that, in Jerusalem. And of course, uh, this particular person, Hanak Teller, was the one who was instrumental in the whole uh, unfolding of, of Yad Vashem. So he has much to say, and I believe what he's going to share, the, the title of his uh, message uh, on Wednesday night is The Heroic Children the heroic children of the Holocaust. And he's going to talk about the children of the Holocaust and how they survived and what they went through. I mean, it is gripping. I have his book by that title. And it's a, it's a powerful, powerful book. Uh, it's one of those books you'd want to read to your children and to your grandchildren. And among other things, it really demonstrated what God promised in the prophet Jeremiah, that as long as there's a, a sun in the sky and there's a moon and there's stars, so are going to be the Jewish people. Hitler wanted to annihilate them, but unsuccessfully. God was faithful, even in the face of evil, to preserve the nation of Israel because God's not done with Israel. He's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming of Messiah. All right. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, A caller says her husband has accepted Christ, been baptized, and attends church every Sunday. However, He has a problem with alcohol. The wife tries to set up counseling for him, but he won't show up. And the situation is causing chaos in her family, especially her children. So she'd like to know, as a Christian wife, what she should do. Can his pastor force force him to attend counseling for his alcoholism? Well, first of all, let's remove the phrase alcoholism. And I I know you mean well by it, um, but the Bible doesn't speak of alcoholism. It speaks of drunkenness. Alcoholism in the secular mindset is a disease. Certainly alcohol is addicting. That's why God says don't use strong drink. Strong drink, of course, is not the rum and whiskeys that came centuries after. Uh, The Bible was completed, but it was fermented wine. God said don't use it. You could give it, however, to a dying, despairing man. The exception also was you could use it to mix it with water. Um, If you talk to the Orthodox... Jewish people. To this day, that's how they view it. Uh, That's how the Talmud views it. That's how the Didash views it. But, you know, today we we, we want to, um, 
you know, have our booze because we want to get a buzz. And so when is drunk drunk? It's drunk when you start drinking and you get that buzz. You say, well, I don't get a buzz off of a glass. Well, only because you, you built a resistance to that in your system. So with your husband, he has become addicted and he is guilty of the sin of drunkenness. That's the problem. And he may be more guilty than you realize, though wives are pretty perceptive. But I've seen people who hide it ever so well, uh, but still you perceive. So what should you do? You should um, let your pastor speak to him and confront him. So, and that, this is, this is an issue I have to confront as a pastor. Wives come to me and say, well, my husband has a problem with drinking and I've talked to him and he doesn't seem to be repentant. So I will talk to him. If he were in my church, I would go up to him and say, pull him off to the side, not to embarrass him. and say, we need to have a talk. And we would start there because if he's getting high on booze, he's got a problem. You see, people want to manage alcohol. Well, you know, I, I, I can handle it. I'm just going to have one or two beers. Look, um, even the law says buzz driving is drunk driving. Should we not have a higher standard than the legal authorities as Christians? Our standard should be above reproach. But Christians say, well, you know, I wasn't rip-roaring drunk. Yeah, I got a little bit high, but, you know, I wasn't rip-roaring drunk. So what's your goal? To see how close you can get to sin without sinning? Our goal should be how far away from sin can we be to live a holy life. So this is an important issue. And again, if someone's listening to me, I'm not saying that the wine in the Bible was always non-alcoholic. That's just stupid. Uh, Even the casual reader of Scripture knows better. But neither am I saying that it's okay to drink. It's okay to mix your wine in a four-to-one ratio, which they did in the first century at both the Lord's Supper, and they did it in common day use because the water would make them sick. And in that sense, strong drink was a blessing from God because it allowed them to be able to drink water without having to habitually boil it. So this is an important issue. I have a, um, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, I have a blog, um, and in under the blog, I have posted an article called Wine Drinking in the New Testament by Robert Stein. He went to Princeton Theological Seminary, now teaches, uh, even as an elderly man, at Southern Seminary. Great article that, in all places, appeared in Christianity Today. It was once a great uh, magazine, now it's apostate. Totally over the edge, just last month endorsing uh, trans... Transvite, uh, transgender behavior. So, you know. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Walk with Christ.